Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. The government funding battle. When the clock strikes midnight Saturday, some federal agencies will close up shop if Congress doesn't act. Analysis of Speaker Johnson's deal, will it pass? A battle over access at Texas's border with Mexico. The DHS deadline passes and Texas AG Ken Paxton says Texas will not surrender. The U.S. strikes more Houthi targets in Yemen as the group ignores warnings and lashes out at another U.S. ship. Now it's back on a list of terrorist groups. A rapid death rate and 100% lethal to humanized mice. Chinese scientists are experimenting with a mutant strain of COVID-19. The study shared last week from Beijing. Former President Trump isn't happy about the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial, and the judge isn't happy about Trump's actions in the courtroom either. Find out what they plan to do next. Presidential candidates were out in force in New Hampshire yesterday, making their case to voters with the primary coming up fast. See the highlights. Shen Yun Performing Arts wraps up 10 performances in Atlanta, Georgia. Hear what audience members had to say about the show. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome everyone to NTD. Welcome, today is Thursday, January 18th. Yeah, and it's good that Congress is coming together to avoid a shutdown for the sake of the essential workers and the other Americans that will be impacted. Yeah, cooperation is good, but we should keep in mind that not everybody is on the same pay on board with the House Freedom Caucus looking at it and saying, yeah, this is what surrender looks like. Yeah, we're going to see what's at stake for Johnson here, especially considering what happened to McCarthy earlier, but that, that's coming up. Right. Today's top news, congressional leaders met with President Biden at the White House yesterday to discuss funding for a variety of issues, including Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan and the southern border. Senators are now in the final phase of reaching a deal, but Republicans in the House and Senate are not on the same page. And today's Melina Weiskup has the story. Congressional leaders expressed optimism after leaving the White House where they discussed with the president a supplemental package that would address border security as well as aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. House Speaker Mike Johnson expressed that he understands the urgent need to send money to Ukraine, but didn't elaborate much beyond the fact that he said he wouldn't settle for the status quo. Instead, shifting his attention to border security, saying that they would not settle for anything less than a well-rounded package, which includes returning to Trump-era policies like remain in Mexico, reforming parole authority, and more. We must have change at the border, substantive policy change. Restoration of the remain in Mexico policy, it is the end of catch and release. It is reform to the broken uh, asylum and parole systems. But we're seeing a fundamental difference in the messaging coming from House Republicans and Senate Republicans. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today saying that Republicans need to make compromises and it's now or never. Listen to this. If we had a 100% Republican government, President, House, Senate, we probably would not be able to get a single Democratic vote to pass what Senator Langford and the administration are trying to get together on. So this is a unique opportunity to accomplish something. 
Senate Democrats say they're working in good faith with Republicans to try to find a compromise on border security so they can get this foreign aid secured. However, they say Republicans shouldn't be making this dependent upon changes at the border, which is one of the most complex and highly partisan topics here on Capitol Hill. Senate negotiators working on this deal have not yet released legislative text or even a framework around this border security and foreign aid deal. However, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he hopes they can have this deal by next week. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Late yesterday, the Senate reached an agreement to speed up votes on a temporary funding resolution to avoid a partial government shutdown on Saturday. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer announced that the Senate would hold a vote on the resolution today at noon. And for insight into Speaker Johnson's funding deal, we hear from Richard Stern, the director of the Federal Budget Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. Richard, good morning. Thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. So is this funding deal that Speaker Johnson and Senate Leader Chuck Schumer reached likely to pass both chambers? So it, it is, but keep in mind, this is only kicking the can down the road by another month. Uh, you know, and so this is buying time for negotiators to get together on the you know, more than $1.6 trillion discretionary budget, which you know is less than a third of the full budget, but it's essentially 100% of the budget for bureaucrats and for all of the regulatory agencies. So this is why it's such a high stakes game. Right, and do you feel that there is reason for these House Freedom Caucus members to want deeper spending cuts in the budget? Absolutely. So I think the important thing for Americans to realize is that the federal budget right now is close to a quarter of GDP. So that means that close to a quarter of all of the work that Americans do, of all the money that Americans earn, is redirected through the federal government, is used by the federal government to distort the market, distort what we all produce, what the economy does for Americans. And then beyond that, the inflation you're seeing, you know, prices are up 17% since Biden's taken office. Interest rates are at record highs. I mean, highs we haven't seen in over a generation. All of that is the result of more government spending that drives prices, right, that bleeds your purchasing power into the hands of the federal government. That's why they want spending cuts, and we need them. Right, and so, Richard, do you think that right now is the best time to go for those type of spending cuts, or is it better to do it when there's no deadline looming and they can just come to some bipartisan agreement? Well, you know, see, here's the problem, though, is that there are too many people in D.C., who care about keeping spending high because they don't care, to be frank, about what it does to inflation and interest rates, what it does to most Americans. They view the spending as a way of getting money to their friends, to their donors. So it really is, unfortunately, a minority of people elected to Congress who are looking at the bigger picture and saying, look, decades of government debt and deficit spending have strangled the economy. I mean, they've caused everything from the economic malaise people feel to the decline of manufacturing to the price increases over the last 50, 60 years that have buried most Americans. So, you know, the truth is when there isn't a so-called deadline, and, and keep in mind, all of these deadlines are manufactured crises from within Congress. So without a deadline, you get nothing done. The closest we've gotten to cutting spending to give money back to the people that earned it is when there's a deadline. 
Yeah, I see what you mean, Richard. And, you know, we'll keep in mind that a government shutdown could have ramifications for those essential workers, like the air traffic control towers, who would have to work without pay and who wants them to be stressed out at work. And then also it's going to put a strain on people who are reliant on the supplemental nutrition programs as that those will all close up, too. But do you expect Speaker Johnson to run into a similar problem that Speaker McCarthy faced? Well, I will say one thing, though. So actually, the supplemental nutrition programs, for example, they're part of that vast 70% of the budget that's mandatory. So so actually, truth be told, they would keep running. There, there are a few things about it that would get a little clunky because they rely on some of the discretionary workforce. But in theory, those programs would still be there. In fact, Social Security, Medicare, things like that. But, but to your point, though, yes, Johnson's looking at the same political dynamic that McCarthy did, the same kind of forces. But I will say this. In my opinion, I think he's a good politician. He's a good man. His people are as well. They care about this. They do understand firmly that that spending we're talking about is driving inflation, that it's driving tens of millions of American families into the ground. So they care about this. But, you know, the reason why you're not seeing a lot of change in the budget deal and the conversations is these entrenched interests in D.C., is these political pressures that keep the spending high at the expense of tens of millions of American families. Right, and that food assistance would be delayed during that time if there was a shutdown. And those air traffic control towers operators would receive payment after they would receive that back pay. So that would be good for them in that event, in the worst-case scenario here. Richard Stern, director of the Federal Budget Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation and former, advisor to budget, uh, former budget advisor to Mike Johnson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much as well. We're waiting to see what happens today in the Texas border battle that's between the Biden administration and the state of Texas. The DHS gave Texas a deadline of midnight last night to provide Border Patrol full access to a public park in Eagle Pass and two and a half miles of the Rio Grande. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton doubled down on blocking Border Patrol yesterday. The AG's office stated Texas will not surrender. Paxton says Texas has constitutional authority to defend its territory. Texas authorities started arresting adult migrants at the public park in Eagle Pass late last night. A Texas official said these are the first migrant arrests at the park since the state took custody and control of the area a week ago. The illegal immigrants are being charged with criminal trespassing. And presidential hopefuls took to the campaign trail yesterday with the New Hampshire primary just around the corner. NTD's Danny Monahan has the highlights. Former President Trump took aim at candidate Nikki Haley during a rally in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on Wednesday. The people behind Nikki Haley are pro-amnesty, they're pro-China, they're pro-open borders. You know, she wants open borders, don't kid yourself. Pro-war, and they're pro-Biden. The former president vowed to return the country to better days. One of the most important issues in this race is which candidate can rescue the American economy and save the American dream. Trump says the GOP needs to rally behind one candidate. And it's time for the Republican Party, frankly, to come together and to unify. We have to unify and focus all of our resources and energy and effort. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held a town hall-style event in the seaside resort of Hampton, New Hampshire, Wednesday. DeSantis listed the accomplishments he feels he has achieved as governor. We beat the teachers' unions on universal school choice. We beat Fauci on COVID. We beat Soros on crime. We beat Disney on protecting the innocence of our children. Lindy Lanfear was at the event. 
She's still gauging the candidates to see who's got what it takes to win. I do like Ron DeSantis, but I think Trump's got all the power right now. Donna Sprague says the country is at a critical crossroads with illegal immigration. Nobody's dealing with the root cause at all. It's just out of control. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley campaigned Wednesday in Rochester, New Hampshire. She spoke about the plight of veterans. We lose 22 heroes a day to suicide. Haley says her parents taught her a lesson. Take care of those who take care of you. She called for better health care for veterans and getting homeless vets off the street. President Biden's name will not be on New Hampshire's primary ballot, but supporters are determined to write his name in. Well, I think he's done a, a reasonably good job, um, despite what we sometimes hear in the news, the economy's on the rebound. I voted for Joe Biden right in because he is exceeding all expectations. He is just doing a phenomenal job, and I support him completely. The New Hampshire primary is on January 23rd. There are no more debates before the voting. Both CNN and ABC have canceled their New Hampshire debates. Nikki Haley made Trump's participation a condition for her attendance. Current Real Clear polling averages show former President Trump with a 13-point cushion. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is set to participate in a CNN town hall today. The former South Carolina governor is hopeful this will give her an advantage over Donald Trump in the 2024 race. And that brings us to the new polls, which show a narrowing lead for Trump compared to Iowa. NTD's Iris Tao has more. A new poll released by Suffolk University, Boston Globe and NBC shows that 50% of likely New Hampshire voters support Trump. But unlike in Iowa, where Trump led both second place DeSantis and third place Nikki Haley by some 30 points, the poll shows that Trump's leading Nikki Haley by only 26 points in New Hampshire. DeSantis, meanwhile, is polling only at 5%. And another poll by the American Research Group shows that Trump and Haley are tied at 40 percent in New Hampshire. And the reason for a seemingly tighter race in New Hampshire can be attributed to a few reasons. For example, unlike in Iowa, undeclared and independent voters can actually vote in a New Hampshire primary. And recent polling has shown that Nikki Haley actually has quite some support from the less conservative base in New Hampshire. And as Haley is increasingly campaigning and putting all her efforts in New Hampshire race, Trump is again toggling between the courtroom in New York and the campaign trail. That's a bit another development on the efforts to remove him from the ballot. A judge in Maine and told election officials to wait until the U.S. Supreme Court decides on Trump's eligibility for the ballot. And that's despite an earlier decision to remove Trump from that state's primary ballot. It means that Trump can effectively stay on the main GOP ballot when March 5th, which is Super Tuesday, comes. And that's as the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to hear oral arguments in a similar case involving the Colorado Supreme Court ruling earlier next month. Back to you. There was plenty of commotion yesterday during the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Former President Trump was in the courtroom as Carroll gave her testimony. He spoke after coming out of the courtroom. Witness today, the a person I never knew, I never had anything to do with. It's a totally rigged deal. This whole thing is rigged election interference. But this is a person I have no idea until this happened, obviously. I have no idea who she was. 
Carol is a magazine columnist who accuses Trump of sexual assault in the 1990s. She was on the witness stand for direct examination by the judge and Trump's attorney. Trump appeared angry and made loud comments during her testimony saying things like, Carol's statements are false and it's a witch hunt. The judge at one point warned Trump that he could be removed from the courtroom if he keeps making comments. Trump responded saying, I would love it. Soon after, Trump made a post on Truth Social saying the judge suffers from a major case of Trump derangement syndrome. The former president also said, I feel an obligation to be at every moment of this ridiculous trial. Trump also asked the judge to delay the trial by one day so that he could go to his mother-in-law's funeral today, but the judge denied his request. Switching topics, winter weather turned tragic yesterday, <clears throat> killing three and injuring a baby. This after a power line fell in a parked car in Portland, Oregon. The three killed, two adults and one teenager were found dead upon firefighters' arrival. The baby was taken to a hospital. Authorities believe the victims were electrocuted after they got out of the vehicle. In Buffalo, homes and streets were covered in lake effect snow. That's when cold air is warmed by the lake and absorbs water vapor, which then falls as snow on the shore. Residents here try to clear the deep snow from the streets and houses. In Utah, traffic was at a standstill in Big Cottonwood Canyon after a avalanche covered a section of the road. The flashing lights of emergency vehicles can be seen in the distance as a snowplow tries to clear the way. And after the break, the U.S. hits more Houthi targets in Yemen and adds it back onto a list of terrorist groups. And Iran states attacks by its allies won't stop until the war in Gaza does. Pakistan strikes targets in Iran after warning of consequences for trespasses on its sovereignty. More on what Pakistan has to say. A new hostage deal announced allowing medical aid to be sent to hostages in Gaza. We have the details and analysis of the deal coming up. Good to have you back. The U.S. military struck more Houthi-controlled sites in Yemen yesterday. Central Command says 14 Houthi missiles on launch rails were hit. It cited an imminent threat to merchant and U.S. Navy ships. CENTCOM says the missiles could have been fired at any time and that U.S. forces exercise their inherent right and obligation to defend themselves. This is the fourth time the U.S. has directly targeted an Iran-backed group over the last week. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more. U.S. Central Command says strikes against the Houthis are meant to degrade their capabilities to attack shipping in the Red Sea. Wednesday's strikes come in response to a second Houthi attack on a U.S. vessel this week. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder says the strikes have been hitting with good effects and said the U.S. will continue to work with regional partners to prevent and deter future attacks. And we're also going to continue to work very hard to prevent the Israel-Hamas conflict from escalating into a broader re regional conflict. The Iran-backed Houthi and Hezbollah groups have stepped up aggressions in concert with Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. The Houthis need to ask themselves how much of their capability do they want degraded uh, and disrupted uh, in light of these illegal, reckless and dangerous attacks. 
But the Houthis continue to ignore U.S. warnings. A one-way bomb-carrying drone hit a U.S.-owned ship in the Gulf of Aden on Wednesday. The captain reported the ship and crew were safe after putting out a fire and sailing to the next port. A Houthi spokesman bragged of scoring a direct hit and vowed to keep attacking ships. Iran's foreign minister on Wednesday said the attacks by its allies won't stop until Israel's war on Hamas ends. The U.S. on Wednesday put Houthis back on the list of specially designated global terrorists. Sanctions attached are meant to sever financing being used to attack or hijack ships. U.S. officials say it will take 30 days to go into effect. That's to give shipping companies, banks, insurers, and others time to prepare. They stated financial penalties will be designed to minimize harm to Yemen's 32 million people. Civilians there are some of the world's poorest and hungriest after years of war between the Iran-backed Houthis and a Saudi-led coalition. U.S. officials said Wednesday new sanctions will exempt commercial shipments of food, medicine, fuel, and humanitarian aid. Critics worry the move will have little effect on the Houthis since they have very few assets in the U.S. to be threatened. The Biden administration for now is not reimposing the more severe designation of foreign terrorist organization on the Houthis. The FTO designation would bar Americans, along with people and organizations under U.S. jurisdiction, from providing material support to the Houthis. Aid groups claim that would criminalize ordinary trade and assistance to Yemen. NSC spokesman John Kirby warned the U.S. will not hesitate to take further actions to protect its citizens and the free flow of international commerce. If the Houthis cease the attacks, we can certainly reconsider this designation. Former President Trump's administration designated the Houthis as global terrorists and a foreign terrorist organization before Trump left office. President Biden reversed course, citing the humanitarian threat that sanctions pose to civilians. Secretary Blinken cited a dire humanitarian situation in Yemen at the time and stated the U.S. listened to warnings from the U.N., humanitarian groups, and others in its decision. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Pakistan says it carried out military strikes inside Iran today. It says it used targeted precision strikes against what it called guerrillas and stated a number of combatants were killed. Pakistan stated it fully respects Iran's sovereignty and territorial integrity. It says the sole objective of the strike was Pakistan's security and national interest. That's after Iran hit what it said were strongholds of a Sunni group with missiles and drones earlier this week. Pakistan said the strikes killed two children and wounded several others and warned Iran of serious consequences. Members of Congress held a vigil on the steps of the Capitol yesterday for hostages still held by Hamas terrorists over 100 days into the Israel-Hamas war. House Speaker Mike Johnson led the bipartisan group in prayer and declared Congress would not stand by and be quiet. Here's the speaker on the hostage crisis. We're here because Hamas is still terrorizing the Jewish people and threatening the state of Israel. A little more than 70 days ago, this group gathered to remember the October 7th attacks on the Jewish people. And here we are again, because there are still Jewish sons and daughters being held captive by Hamas. Johnson said partisanship must be left aside. He called it a responsibility to defend the United States' strongest ally in the Middle East, quote, not as Democrats or Republicans, but as Americans. Family members of hostages joined the vigil. More than 100 remain in captivity. A group representing the hostages says about a third have chronic diseases that need medical care. The first shipment of medicine for hostages arrived in Gaza yesterday. The delivery is part of a deal mediated by France and Qatar. It's the first agreement between Israel and the terrorist group since the temporary seven-day truce last year. 
A spokesman from Qatar's foreign ministry posted on X last night that the medicine had crossed into Gaza but didn't say how it would be distributed. A senior Hamas member said for every box of medicine sent to a hostage, 1,000 boxes would be sent in for Palestinians. And for more on the hostage situation, we're bringing in Alex Trayman. He is the Jerusalem bureau chief for the Jewish News Syndicate. Good morning, Alex. Good to see you. So mediations were reportedly still ongoing after the medicine arrived in the strips and Hamas initially wanted to change the conditions for the deal. So can you first give us a quick update on on that and if there are indeed new conditions? Well, it's not a surprise that Hamas constantly wants to try to change the conditions of the deal. Uh, they wanted that the uh, medicines that were prepared for the Gazan citizens would not be uh, inspected by Israel, which is uh, a curious demand. Uh, Israel has not given into that demand. They demanded that all of the medicines would, in fact, be be inspected, uh, and uh, also the. The medicine was supposed to be delivered by the International Red Cross, but of course, uh, the, the Hamas doesn't want the the whereabouts of the hostages to be known. So Hamas has uh, demanded that they will be the ones to distribute the medicine to the hostages that they remain in captivity. Uh, and Israel really doesn't have any guarantee that those medicines will, in fact, reach the hostages. I see. So do we know anything more about how the medical aid could be distributed? What are other options there? Well, uh, just as Hamas brought hostages to the Red Cross during that uh, eight-day ceasefire several weeks back, uh, the Red Cross will take the medication, will deliver it to Hamas representatives, and then uh, really you have to hope for the best that the medication gets to the to the hostages. And, and over 40 hostages uh, are supposed to be taking regular medication, uh, of which they haven't been taking since they've been brought into captivity over 100 days ago. So basically they hand them over and then they have no control over it anymore. So what about the batch that's supposed to go to civilians in exchange? So how do you think, will it be made sure that this medicine will actually be distributed to Gazans and civilians? What do you know? Well, that's the hope, of course, but uh, there's been lots of reports that uh, much of the humanitarian aid which has been sent into Gaza, we're talking literally about uh, over 100 trucks of uh, humanitarian aid every day uh, for several weeks now, that uh, Hamas actually takes a lot of this materials and uses it for themselves and for their leaders. Uh, you would hope that uh, in the case of medication, which is really purely humanitarian in every sense of the word, that it would get to the hospitals and get to the medical clinic because there's no doubt that there are many Gazan civilians inside the Strip that, that desperately need this, this uh, material. Right. I think you might have touched on this a little bit just now, but let's go into a bit more detail. What do you expect Hamas to get out of this deal? Well, Hamas wants to show that it is able to deliver something for its uh, for its constituents. I mean, they've literally just brought the worst death and destruction on their civilian population that's ever been seen inside the Gaza Strip. And you have a growing animosity towards Hamas that this is what they brought uh, for their people. And so uh, here they're trying to uh, demonstrate that they can uh, bring some sort of humanitarian assistance. But also uh, this is for Qatar and France, uh, the, the negotiation of this deal to demonstrate that they're able to get something done. It helps them establish a little bit of credibility. And the hope is that uh, this initial deal, uh, which is for the distribution of medication, could later lead to another deal which might see the return of the hostages to Israel. I see. Thank you so much, Alex Trayman, for your input on this. Thank you for having me.
Over 100 days have passed since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack. Hundreds were killed at the Nova Music Festival on that day. Three of them are now sharing their experiences. The horrific events of the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel cost around 1,200 Israeli lives. Almost 400 of them were killed while attending the Nova Outdoor Music Festival. Three survivors are speaking out about the event's impact on their lives. Their comments come ahead of a movie about the event called Nova. I think as an Israeli, as a Jew, as a survivor of the Nova Festival, I have no choice but to come here, especially at a time when people accuse Israel of perpetrating a genocide. 27-year-old Michal Ohana tells how she hid from attackers for hours under a tank. When she made a run for it, she was shot in the leg. The wounds put her in the hospital for two weeks. While running from gunfire, she had to sidestep bodies of people she knew. She admits tearfully that although she's alive, she is still suffering greatly. For the first two months, I had this awful feeling of guilt. Why me? I still have this guilt. I think that's also why I feel compelled to be here and speak up for all of those who were murdered. Itay Razumenko and a friend survived by cutting through a field at a fast speed. Four of his friends were killed and another is still a hostage in Gaza. This engineering student, who usually defines mathematically, says his survival came down to one thing. I'm an engineering student. Uh, uh, my things, they have answers, formulas, um, proofs. Here, you could go by 10 degrees right and you will be dead. You could go by 20 degrees left and you will be alive. You could stay in the place for five minutes and you will be dead. You could stay in, in, the, in the same place for 11 minutes and you will be dead. So there were, no, it's just luck, definitely luck. Yuval Vatsknin and her boyfriend escaped by car. They saw Hamas firing on victims. After hours of driving to avoid the attackers, she made it home to her kibbutz. She's still struggling with fear. We're trying to go to a psychological treatment, but uh, I feel like I'm still in the same day. It's, it's, it's getting a little better every day, but it's not even close to, to be okay. A lot of uh, images from that same day, uh, voices, that uh, make us, make me into a panic attack. Fear every time that it's a little bit dark or when the sun comes up, uh, that's it. All three are under psychiatric care while in Paris attending a screening of the Nova documentary. The film uses video and audio clips from partygoers and released video from Hamas attackers to document the events of those terrifying hours. Coming up, China's population is on the decline for a second year in a row in 2023. We take a look at the numbers with the host of NTD Business. A rapid death rate and 100% lethal to humanized mice. Chinese scientists are experimenting with a mutant strain of COVID-19. The study shared last week from Beijing. Stay tuned for that story.
Welcome back. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma. Hi, Don. To discuss China's population decline. China's population fell for a second consecutive year in 2023. So, Don, give us the numbers. All right. So, before I begin, uh, just a quick mention that uh, numbers coming out of China maybe take it for a grain of salt with a grain of salt uh, because you know it has a spotty record on that front. If you just think back on the COVID numbers, uh, but that aside, according to China's National uh, Bureau of uh, Statistics, the total number of people in China now stands at 1.409 billion people in 2023. So this is a 0.15% drop uh, compared to the previous year. Now, 0.15% that's equivalent to uh, around 2 million people fewer in China last year. And this was way higher than de the decline in 2022. Uh, those numbers were in the six digits. Uh, now we're in the seven digit figure. Uh, so this is uh, very uh, surprising. Uh, second straight year in a row. Um, so in addition to the declining population, we're also seeing a record low birth rate and as well as a record high death rate. So. Um, let me start on the birth rate uh, real quick. So 6.39 births per 1,000 people. Um, births in the country have been plummeting for decades uh, because of the in part to the uh, one child policy. And that was a way to control the population. But now it seems like they have the opposite problem. Um, now the death rate, uh, total deaths last year rose to 11.1 million. And this is a big number to put that into perspective for you guys. Death rate is at the highest level since 1974, and that was during the Cultural Revolution and is also an increase from 2022 levels. Right. Well, the one child policy was in place for 35 years, and then, of course, the regime had a change of tunes there. And now they're actually encouraging couples to have children. So what led to the decline? Tell us more about that. Yeah, so there's a number of reasons at play here, and I'll mention uh, some of them. So high childcare costs, high education costs are uh, giving parents some pause uh, when it comes to whether they want to have children. Uh, uncertainty in the job market, uh, discouraging women from pausing their careers, uh, adding another layer of difficulty, and not to mention uh, record high youth unemployment rates in China, low wages uh, or falling wages for of white collar workers, uh, crisis in the property sector. You know, you got to have a nice home if you want to raise children. Um, An increasing number of people are opting to stay single or delay marriage. Some simply cannot afford to get married because of the economic situation, uh, has a poor outlook as of right now. And one of the reasons uh, for the declining population, other than those factors, I'll just mention quickly, are uh, COVID deaths. China reported 120,000 officially um, to the World Health Organization of deaths, mm -hmm. but many are criticizing that number. Some are speculating it could be much higher than that. So that could have contributed to the declining population as well last year, uh, you know, with without new births keeping up as well and high death rates. Uh, it's, it's no surprise that the population is declining. And speaking of uh, births, uh, China's population is actually aging very fast and that's not helping. The number of people aged 60 and over in China is expected to increase to 400 million by 2035. Now 400 million, that, that's an incredible number because that's more than the total population of the United States. Some perspective for you guys here. 
Yeah, Don, and it is very significant that this is the lowest birth rate on record for China, considering that they went through the Great Leap Forward, put forward by the communists, where they saw mass starvation and famine that really put a big hit on that country there. So, yeah, this is really serious news. Thanks for the update. Don yeah. Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Chinese scientists are testing a new mutant COVID-19 virus strain. How deadly is it? So far, all the mice that have been infected died in just eight days, though it remains unclear how this virus would affect humans. The virus attacked their brains, which were engineered to mimic human genetic makeup. The strain GXP2V infected the lungs, bones, eyes, tracheas and brains of the mice. They quickly lost weight and were eventually killed by the brain infection. Their eyes turned completely white before they died. Authors of the study work for a university in Beijing. They underscored the risk researching this virus poses toward infecting humans. Researchers say GXP2V virus similar to a strain of virus that causes COVID-19. A former professor of medicine at Stanford posted the research on X, writing this madness must be stopped before it's too late. The CCP virus, which causes COVID-19, hit China in 2020. It later spread around the world, taking over one million lives on U.S. soil. Now, the world is still in the dark about where the virus came from. Debates remain over whether it came from an animal or a lab leak. Coming up next, looking for a job? If so, you're in luck. The cards are stacked in your favor, says a career specialist. How baby boomers are impacting the market and how to set yourself apart in a moment. Good morning and good to have you back. We have an update on the job market. One threat is from artificial intelligence. The International Monetary Fund says 40% of jobs across the globe could be disrupted by AI. That's a lot of jobs and that is a challenge as the IMF analysis shows that AI replacing some of their tasks can lead to less hiring, lower wages and reduced labor demand. But there is some good news for people looking for a job in the U.S. according to Cynthia Favor. She's the Director of Vocation and Career Readiness Programs at the Center for Career Development at Gustavus Adolphus College. I asked her if it's a job seekers market right now. Here's her response. Uh, I would say yes it is. I think that there are lots and lots of opportunities and I know that because we're having a lot of contact with employers who are working really hard and trying to come up with really creative ideas to connect with candidates. Uh, so that tells me that the opportunities are out there for candidates. That is really good news, considering that last year, 2023, was rocked by these mass layoffs, fears of a recession and so forth. So where are the opportunities right now for job seekers? Yeah, uh, some of it is obvious, like the trades, healthcare, education. Uh, and by education, I mean specifically teachers. I know here in my local area, we have suspended a teacher job fair because all the teachers already have jobs, so we don't need to do the fair. Uh, uh, I think that, uh, of course, uh, accounting, finance, those kinds of areas, uh, technology. So there's opportunity in lots of places, but candidates are still going to have to look for the right fit for themselves. 
Yes, definitely. And software engineers was considered one of the safest jobs in the 21st century. But now all this competition and AI is really infringing on that. And it's causing a lot of uncertainty there, actually. Now, there is this phenomenon that baby boomers are retiring. How is that impacting the job market? Yeah, that's been an interesting group because I think they retired once and got um bored in retirement and came back and now they're leaving again. Uh, well, first it's sheer numbers. There was, that's just a, a big group of people. And also that is a group of people that um, really invested a lot into work. And so they worked long hours and maybe had a bit of a different work ethic than what we're seeing for younger or newer um, employees. Um, not in a, and I would say that it's uh, probably a, a shift towards the good. You see the baby boomers maybe put a little bit too much and maybe at the detriment of their health and their families and relationships. Younger employees are really looking for more life work balance, which I think is a good thing. Uh, but it means that you might have to have more people to get the same amount of done. So employers right now are really scrutinizing their candidates here. How can a potential employee set themselves apart? Uh, the biggest thing I would say is to really look at how you connect to what that employer and what they're doing. Employers are willing to look at a wide range of backgrounds and uh, a lot of different types of skill sets, but the candidate has to be able to show how they connect. It, I connect to your mission. I use the same skill sets in a different venue, and here's why I wanna use it in your organization. I think that's really the biggest thing, is that you you can't you cannot just sit at your computer and hit send, 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 and, and think that you're gonna get the results that you're hoping for. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Cynthia Favor, Director of Career Programs at Gustavus Adolphus College. Been nice to be with you, bye now. Job seekers market, huh? So yeah, that makes sense. And with employer branding now on the rise as well, I feel like there is a lot that uh, employ employers are doing now to better compete for those talents. Yeah, it is really good news. And you know, according to Bright Network, there's one way to make yourself a little bit more marketable, and that's be a recognizable name. If the company's given a talk, go there, ask a question, follow up with them on social media so they see your name more often. Oh, that's a really good tip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we're moving on to another topic. Samsung unveiled their latest premium smartphones yesterday in the company's latest bit to challenge Apple. The new Galaxy S24 models will include AI functions like simultaneous translation of foreign language phone calls. The new phones will feature two-way voice translation in real time. Samsung says it's the first ever smartphone to offer it. It'll be available in 13 different languages. Other features include changing the tone of messages to casual, formal business or social media. There are also AI summaries and translations of voice recordings. And generative editing of photos will turn real-time videos into slow motion. Only 5% of smartphones shipped in 2024 will be AI capable. This will grow to 45% by 2027, wow. according to data provider Canalys. Yeah, the Galaxy S24 series will be sold starting January 31st. And coming up, Shen Yun Performing Arts was in Atlanta, Georgia for 10 performances. Hear what audience members had to say after watching the show in a moment.
Welcome back. Shen Yun Performing Arts Season is here. That's right. The Classical Chinese Dance Company has already toured over 30 cities since the start of its 2024 season in December. That is pretty amazing, and it has around eight companies touring the world simultaneously, right? Yeah, that is correct. And during its 10 performances in Atlanta, Georgia over the weekend, a Grammy Award-winning member of the Commodores saw the show and called the performance mesmerizing. Take a look. First of all, it, it was absolutely great, right? Um, I would say it deserves a Grammy. Shin Yun performed for Atlanta audiences, upholding its mission to restore 5,000 years of Chinese civilization and culture. Combining classical Chinese dance, music, costume, and visuals to bring stories to life. It was really uh, written well. You know, it all meshed together. Um, and there were always moments of ups and downs and, you know, the way it made you feel going through the whole thing was the way that I think that it should have been. I, I was really mesmerized by it. I loved it. I would love to, to have met the conductor and also the, the writer. According to Shen Yun's website, in classical Chinese dance, the inner feelings drive the body to achieve the full expression of the movements. Whoever wrote the music, whoever did the dancing, uh, uh, um, the choreography, it was seamless. It was very special the way they did it. And of course, the dancers are just incredible. I feel inspired. I feel lifted and fed. My whole spirit, my whole body has just been, just really is in a state of, of happiness. You think of perfection as mechanical, but the movement on the stage, everything was extremely graceful and it communicated the heart of the religion and the spiritual beliefs uh, of, of the theme of the show. Along with classical Chinese dance, Shin Yun features musical performances. The Erhu is a two-stringed musical instrument with an over 4,000-year history and can present a wide range of emotions through its sound. It was absolutely incredible that you could have so much emotion and sound and vibrancy in a two-stringed instrument. It really, really communicated a deep felt emotion that I think what the, the whole cast and everyone in their performance, everyone gave that. It was really a spiritual journey. Shin Yun will be touring Georgia until February 17th. You got to see it, the, the elegance and the, and the strength and all of the dances and the performances were, yes, I would recommend it highly. You can tell people are really touched after seeing the performance. Yeah, absolutely. So I think they're in New York in the metropolitan area most of April, but I think just, uh, starting end of March actually already. So if anybody wants to catch that. Yeah, it's a great opportunity. Mm. All right, uh, we're heading to a quick break. We'll be back in one minute. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD.
Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump in court again, this time to determine damages after being found liable for defamation in the Eugene Carroll case. We get analysis from a former federal prosecutor. Senate leaders express optimism in reaching a deal on border reform and funding conflicts overseas, but Republicans in the House and Senate are not in unison. Will this deal end up in a stalemate? Presidential candidates were out in force in New Hampshire yesterday, making their case to voters with the next primary coming up fast. See the highlights. A battle over access at Texas's border with Mexico. The DHS deadline passes and Texas AG Ken Paxton says Texas will not surrender. The U.S. strikes more Houthi targets in Yemen as the group ignores warnings and lashes out at another U.S. ship. Now it's back on a list of terrorist groups. Members of Congress hold a candlelight vigil for hostages still held by Hamas. More on why Speaker Mike Johnson is asking for partisanship to be left aside. Americans still dealing with the harsh winter weather as accidents pile up, with some incidents turning tragic. Stay tuned to see some of the conditions people are facing. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Thursday, January 18th. In today's top news, congressional leaders met with President Biden at the White House yesterday to discuss funding for a variety of issues, including Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the southern border. Senators are now in the final phase of reaching a deal, but Republicans in the House and Senate are not on the same page. Late yesterday, the Senate agreed to speed up votes on a temporary funding resolution to avoid a partial government shutdown on Saturday. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer announced that the Senate would hold a vote on the resolution today at noon. And earlier I spoke with Richard Stern, the director of the Federal Budget Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation and former budget advisor to Congressman Mike Johnson. He gave some insight into Speaker Johnson's funding deal. Uh, you know, and so this is buying time for negotiators to get together on the you know more than $1.6 trillion discretionary budget, which, you know, is less than a third of the full budget, but it's essentially 100% of the budget for bureaucrats and for all of the regulatory agencies. So this is why it's such a high stakes game. Right. And do you feel that there is reason for these House Freedom Caucus members to want deeper spending cuts in the budget? Absolutely. So I think the important thing for Americans to realize is that the federal budget right now is close to a quarter of GDP. So that means that close to a quarter of all of the work that Americans do, of all the money that Americans earn, is redirected through the federal government, is used by the federal government to distort the market, distort what we all produce, what the economy does for Americans. And then beyond that, the inflation you're seeing, you know, prices are up. 17% since Biden's taken office. Interest rates are at record highs. I mean, highs we haven't seen in over a generation. All of that is the result of more government spending that drives prices, right? That bleeds your purchasing power into the hands of the federal government. But do you expect Speaker Johnson to run into a similar problem that Speaker McCarthy faced? Yes, Johnson's looking at the same political dynamic that McCarthy did, the same kind of forces. But I will say this. 
in my opinion, I think he's a good politician. He's a good man. His people are as well. They care about this. They do understand firmly that that spending we're talking about is driving inflation, that it's driving tens of millions of American families into the ground. So they care about this. But, you know, the reason why you're not seeing a lot of change in the budget deal and the conversations is these entrenched interests in D.C., is these political pressures that keep the spending high at the expense of tens of millions of American families. Richard Stern, director of the Federal Budget Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation and former advisor to budget, uh, former budget advisor to Mike Johnson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much as well. Presidential hopefuls took to the campaign trail yesterday with the New Hampshire primary just around the corner. And today's Daniel Monahan has the highlights. Former President Trump took aim at candidate Nikki Haley during a rally in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on Wednesday. The people behind Nikki Haley are pro-amnesty, they're pro-China, they're pro-open borders. You know, she wants open borders, don't kid yourself. Pro-war, and they're pro-Biden. The former president vowed to return the country to better days. One of the most important issues in this race is which candidate can rescue the American economy and save the American dream. Trump says the GOP needs to rally behind one candidate. And it's time for the Republican Party, frankly, to come together and to unify. We have to unify and focus all of our resources and energy and effort. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held a town hall-style event in the seaside resort of Hampton, New Hampshire, Wednesday. DeSantis listed the accomplishments he feels he has achieved as governor. We beat the teachers' unions on universal school choice. We beat Fauci on COVID. We beat Soros on crime. We beat Disney on protecting the innocence of our children. Lindy Lanfear was at the event. She's still gauging the candidates to see who's got what it takes to win. I do like Ron DeSantis, but I think Trump's got all the power right now. Donna Sprague says the country is at a critical crossroads with illegal immigration. Nobody's dealing with the root cause at all. It's just out of control. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley campaigned Wednesday in Rochester, New Hampshire. She spoke about the plight of veterans. We lose 22 heroes a day to suicide. Haley says her parents taught her a lesson. Take care of those who take care of you. She called for better health care for veterans and getting homeless vets off the street. President Biden's name will not be on New Hampshire's primary ballot, but supporters are determined to write his name in. Well, I think he's done a, a reasonably good job, um, despite what we sometimes hear in the news, the economy's on the rebound. I voted for Joe Biden right in because he is exceeding all expectations. He is just doing a phenomenal job and I support him completely. The New Hampshire primary is on January 23rd. There are no more debates before the voting. Both CNN and ABC have canceled their New Hampshire debates. Nikki Haley made Trump's participation a condition for her attendance. Current real clear polling averages show former President Trump with a 13-point cushion. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. There was plenty of commotion yesterday during the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Former President Trump was in the courtroom as Carroll gave her testimony. Carroll is a magazine columnist who accuses Trump of sexual assault in the 1990s. She was on the witness stand for direct examination by the judge and Trump's attorney. Trump appeared angry and made loud comments during her testimony saying things like, 
Carol's statements are false, and it's a witch hunt. The judge at one point warned Trump that he could be removed from the courtroom if he keeps making comments. Trump responded saying, I would love it. Soon after, Trump made a post on Truth Social saying the judge suffers from a major case of Trump derangement syndrome. The former president also said, I feel an obligation to be at every moment of this ridiculous trial. Trump also asked the judge to delay the trial by one day so that he could go to his mother-in-law's funeral today, but the judge denied his request. Here's Trump speaking, uh, coming out of the courtroom. What happened very terribly is we asked to just delay the trial for one day so I could go to the funeral tomorrow, and then we could start Friday or Monday or any time they want. And he said, absolutely not. The trial will go on just as it is. You can go to the funeral or you can go to the trial, but you can't do both. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was terrible. We have more for you on Trump's trial to determine damages for defaming writer E. Jane Carroll, which started this week. To bring you up to speed, it's the second trial involving allegations that Trump sexually abused Carroll and Trump's denial of it. This one involves Trump's denial in 2019. Carroll's attorneys are seeking $10 million in damages. That's on top of the $5 million Carroll was awarded in May last year after Trump was found liable for sexual abuse and defamation. We dive into this with Will Scharf, a former federal prosecutor and attorney for President Trump. Will, thank you so much for your time today. Will Trump testify? Uh, th that's going to be a question for the president. I think it's worth noting, though, that this entire case has been funded by a radical left-wing donor named Reid Hoffman. When the president talks about election interference in the context of really all of these cases uh, that have been brought against him in the last year, uh, that's what we're talking about. We're seeing play out in a courtroom in Manhattan uh, an act of deliberate election interference. And I think that's why President Trump has been so frustrated by the proceedings here. Okay, so Will, why would Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, take issue with Carroll's legal team when saying in the order that if Trump were to testify, he'd have to admit he assaulted Carroll and that he lied in saying this? Well, so this trial is the second of two trials. This is just a damages phase trial. Uh, at the original trial, which uh, assessed, uh, li I guess, liability for defamation, uh, President Trump did not testify. So there are legal considerations that would play into any decision there. Uh, but again, this has been a highly hostile courtroom. Uh, and President Trump, I think, is right, rightfully frustrated at all of the proceedings here, including, as noted in your lead-in, uh, the fact that he's uh, essentially being forced to choose uh, attending his wife's mother's funeral or attend a day of trial. Uh, it's all highly irregular, and I think that speaks to the frustration President Trump and the team uh, have had with this case, really, from its inception. Yeah, and Hava was taking issue with this, saying that Trump shouldn't be forced to say whatever the court wants him to say here. Now, he was found liable for sexual abuse and for defamation in previous case by a jury in a federal court. So why would Trump reportedly be seen shaking his head when the judge says that he sexually assaulted her? Well, President Trump believes that this entire case is absolute garbage. Uh, he denies really ever having met E. Jean Carroll, knowing who she is. It's worth noting that E. Jean Carroll's uh, account of what happened has changed radically over the years. Uh, until recently, she couldn't place the alleged incident uh, beyond a, a decade. Now, suddenly, she's testifying as to specific details of what allegedly happened. Uh, and President Trump is rightfully frustrated at the way that things are playing out. I think that's why he was so frustrated in court yesterday, and that's why this case uh, is, is such a, a, just an absurd venture.
Well, you talk about the timeline here, decades being the span. Was Trump ever tried in criminal court over these sexual abuse allegations? And if not, is that due to the statute of limitations? No, he's never been tried in criminal court. And as I said previously, uh, this is a case that's being funded by a radical left-wing donor named Reed Hoffman. Uh, this is a concocted effort uh, to interfere with President Trump's ability to run for office. And I think that's just not an appropriate use of the legal system uh, in our system of the rule of law and our system uh, of, of the, the way elections are supposed to function. But no, President Trump has never been criminally indicted on anything relating to this case. Uh, and Carol's allegations uh, have, have shifted wildly over the years in a way that I believe makes her a, a, just an incredibly not credible witness. Well, Will, thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing this with us and clearing the air. Will Sharp, former federal prosecutor and attorney for President Trump. Great to be with you guys. Thank you. Coming up, the U.S. strikes more Houthi targets in Yemen as the group ignores warnings and lashes out at another U.S. ship. Now it's back on a list of terrorist groups. Members of Congress hold a candlelight vigil for hostages still held by Hamas. Speaker Mike Johnson leads a bipartisan group in prayer, saying partisanship must be left aside. A battle over access at the Texas border with Mexico. The DHS deadline passes and Texas AG Ken Paxton says Texas will not surrender. Federal investigators are accused of asking banks to search private transactions for their January 6th probe. Hear more on their accusations. Americans still dealing with harsh winter weather as accidents pile up, with some turning tragic. Stay tuned to hear about the severe conditions people are facing. Good to have you back. The U.S. military struck more Houthi-controlled sites in Yemen yesterday. Central Command says 14 Houthi missiles on launch rails were hit. It cited an imminent threat to Mergent and U.S. Navy ships. CENTCOM says the missiles could have been fired at any time and that U.S. forces exercise their inherent right and obligation to defend themselves. This is the fourth time the U.S. has directly targeted the Iran-backed group over the last week. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more. U.S. Central Command says strikes against the Houthis are meant to degrade their capabilities to attack shipping in the Red Sea. Wednesday's strikes come in response to a second Houthi attack on a U.S. vessel this week. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder says the strikes have been hitting with good effects and said the U.S. will continue to work with regional partners to prevent and deter future attacks. And we're also going to continue to work very hard to prevent the Israel-Hamas conflict from escalating into a broader re regional conflict. The Iran-backed Houthi and Hezbollah groups have stepped up aggressions in concert with Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. The Houthis need to ask themselves how much of their capability do they want degraded uh, and disrupted uh, in light of these illegal, reckless and dangerous attacks. But the Houthis continue to ignore U.S. warnings. A one-way bomb-carrying drone hit a U.S.-owned ship in the Gulf of Aden on Wednesday. The captain reported the ship and crew were safe after putting out a fire and sailing to the next port. A Houthi spokesman bragged of scoring a direct hit and vowed to keep attacking ships. Iran's foreign minister on Wednesday said the attacks by its allies won't stop until Israel's war on Hamas ends. 
The U.S. on Wednesday put Houthis back on the list of specially designated global terrorists. Sanctions attached are meant to sever financing, being used to attack or hijack ships. U.S. officials say it will take 30 days to go into effect. That's to give shipping companies, banks, insurers, and others time to prepare. They stated financial penalties will be designed to minimize harm to Yemen's 32 million people. Civilians there are some of the world's poorest and hungriest after years of war between the Iran-backed Houthis and a Saudi-led coalition. U.S. officials said Wednesday new sanctions will exempt commercial shipments of food, medicine, fuel, and humanitarian aid. Critics worry the move will have little effect on the Houthis since they have very few assets in the U.S. to be threatened. The Biden administration for now is not reimposing the more severe designation of foreign terrorist organization on the Houthis. The FTO designation would bar Americans, along with people and organizations under U.S. jurisdiction, from providing material support to the Houthis. Aid groups claim that would criminalize ordinary trade and assistance to Yemen. NSC spokesman John Kirby warned the U.S. will not hesitate to take further actions to protect its citizens and the free flow of international commerce. If the Houthis cease the attacks, we can certainly reconsider this designation. Former President Trump's administration designated the Houthis as global terrorists and a foreign terrorist organization before Trump left office. President Biden reversed course, citing the humanitarian threat that sanctions pose to civilians. Secretary Blinken cited a dire humanitarian situation in Yemen at the time and stated the U.S. listened to warnings from the U.N., humanitarian groups, and others in its decision. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Members of Congress held a vigil on the steps of the Capitol yesterday for hostages still held by Hamas terrorists over 100 days into the Israel-Hamas war. House Speaker Mike Johnson led the bipartisan group in prayer and declared Congress would not stand by and be quiet. Johnson said partisanship must be left aside. He called it a responsibility to defend the United States' strongest ally in the Middle East, quote, not as, not as Democrats or Republicans, but as Americans. Family members of the hostages joined the vigil. More than 100 remain in captivity. A group representing the hostages says about a third have chronic diseases that need medical care. The first shipment of medicine for hostages arrived in Gaza yesterday. The delivery is part of a deal mediated by France and Qatar. It's the first agreement between Israel and the terrorist group since the temporary seven-day truce last year. A spokesman from Qatar's foreign ministry posted on X last night that the medicine had crossed into Gaza but didn't say how it would be distributed. We're waiting to see what happens today in the Texas border battle that's between the Biden administration and the state of Texas. DHS gave Texas a deadline at midnight last night to provide Border Patrol full access to a public park in Eagle Pass and two and a half miles of the Rio Grande. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton doubled down on blocking Border Patrol yesterday. The AG's office stated Texas will not surrender. Paxton says Texas has constitutional authority to defend its territory. Texas authorities started arresting adult migrants at the public park in Eagle Pass late last night. A Texas official said these are the first migrant arrests at the park since the state took custody and control of the area a week ago. The illegal immigrants are being charged with criminal trespassing. Federal investigators are accused of asking banks to search private transactions for their January 6th probe. Congressman Jim Jordan accuses them of urging banks to look for terms like MAGA and Trump. Here's more on Jordan's accusations. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, is the U.S. Treasury Department's financial crime-fighting unit. In a letter to former FinCEN director Noah Bischoff, 
House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan accuses the organization of pervasive financial surveillance. Jordan also heads the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. In his letter, he says the two committees have documents indicating FinCEN sent out materials to banks on behalf of law enforcement. Jordan said the materials outlined so-called typologies of persons of interest. He said FinCEN told banks to look out for the terms MAGA and Trump, and also the purchase of religious texts with extremist views, including the Bible. Jordan alleges that FinCEN also warned banks to look out for transactions associated with small arms and recreational goods and supplies. Jordan wrote that these transactions having no apparent criminal nexus and in fact relate to Americans exercising their Second Amendment rights. He accused FinCEN of characterizing these people as potential threats. In his letter, Jordan raised questions about FinCEN's respect for fundamental civil liberties. The FBI has declined to comment on the accusations, while neither FinCEN nor the Treasury Department returned a request to respond to Mr. Jordan's allegations. Prosecutors have charged over 1,200 people with various crimes related to January 6th. Three years later, dozens of detainees are still in jail awaiting trial. Winter weather turned tragic yesterday, killing three and injuring a baby. This after a power line fell on a parked car in Portland, Oregon. The three killed two adults and one teenager were found dead upon firefighters' arrival. The baby was taken to a hospital. Authorities believe the victims were electrocuted after they got out of the vehicle. In Buffalo, homes and streets were covered in lake effect snow. That's when cold air is warmed by the lake and absorbs water vapor, which then falls as snow on the shore. Residents here are trying to clear the deep snow from streets and houses. In Utah, traffic was at a standstill in Big Cottonwood Canyon after an avalanche covered a section of the road. The flashing lights of emergency vehicles can be seen in the distance as a snowplow tries to clear the way. And be careful next time you're in Las Vegas. A new law bans stopping or standing on pedestrian bridges in the Las Vegas Strip. Violators could face as much as six months in jail or a $1,000 fine. Clark County lawmakers voted unanimously to approve the measure. The new ban includes surrounding connected stairs, elevators and escalators. It doesn't include standing or stopping if a person is waiting to use an elevator, stairway or escalator. Wow, somebody should, uh, yeah, I wonder what's the story behind this. Well, pretty extreme measures. I mean, they really must think it's important to keep that traffic moving. And according to critics like the ACLU, this could infringe on a person's right to protest or display their faith, for example, in certain acts. Oh, I see, yeah, makes, makes sense. But, you know, like even in New York, we don't, anyway. Uh, Times Square could, is also standing sting a lot of times but you know a lot of right. traffic a lot of foot traffic exactly. around here all right uh, we have to wrap up our show now but we'll keep you updated with the latest information so stay tuned for our news today broadcast at 11 a.m eastern time thanks for watching i'm evelyn lee and i'm kevin hogan